Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we have our usual format for you today. We'll go through our news roundup to start things off and we'll talk about uh, the Eco announcements that were made today. If you're not familiar with that company or those announcements, we'll talk through them. Uh, but interesting new, uh, new to the US company, big in China already, um, that uh, had a major US launch today and, and fairly complicated stuff. So we'll, we'll try and cover that as briefly as possible. Uh, we'll talk about the reports that Apple's uh, car initiative, codenamed Project Titan, is being scaled back and perhaps refocused somewhat. And then we'll talk about a report from the Wall Street Journal today that the uh, Google over-the-top TV service has signed a deal with CBS and it's close to signing deals with other major US broadcast networks. Um, and just talk about the significance of that in terms of broader development of skinny bundles and OTT video services. Uh, our question of the week will focus on uh, a preview of this earnings season that we're just coming into now. We had a Netflix report on Monday, but most of the big companies that we usually talk about here on the podcast are still to come. So we'll run through those. Uh, we'll run through sort of six or seven of the biggest companies in this space, including uh, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, and Samsung, uh, probably Twitter as well. And then our third segment, we'll talk about uh, the reviews of the Google Pixel phone that came out this week. Um, we'll just kind of talk about what those reviews suggest about the phone and where it might be going from here. And then we'll wrap up as usual with our weekly pick where Aaron will have a recommendation for our listeners. Um, just a preview of next week's episode. Um, invites have just gone out for the Apple event next week. It's assumed to be an event at which they'll announce new Macs. Uh, I'll be going to that event on Thursday. Um, Microsoft is having an event on Wednesday to introduce some new Surface products. I will not be there in person. That will be happening in New York. Uh, but I certainly will be following that remotely. And so I would guess the next week's episode will be uh, covering both of those events in some depth. There's obviously going to be a fair amount of commonality in terms of uh, the the PC business uh, from two different perspectives there. So I think it'd be fascinating to compare and contrast what we hear out of those two events. So that'll probably be next week's episode. Let's kick off with the uh, news roundup then. As I mentioned, Le Eco, Chinese company which began life as Le TV and has uh, sort of changed its branding to reflect a focus on what it calls its ecosystem, uh, had its big sort of US coming out party today. Um, they acquired Vizio, the TV manufacturer, and in July. Um, they've had phones, TVs, and a variety of other products already in other markets. And here in the US, they've largely sold accessories until now. But today, the phones that they have, the TVs that they have, uh, there's a bike uh, that they've made uh, that's going to be going on sale soon too. They have a concept uh, electronic vehicle, electric vehicle, I should say, uh, that they they talked about. But really the whole event today was talking about their ecosystem and about how the different pieces of what they do kind of come together. It was sort of a unique approach from a Chinese consumer electronics company, several of which we've seen try to break into the US in the last few years. But Aaron, what was your take on all of this? Well, I'm, you know, this is interesting because it's a huge brand endeavor. I mean, this is, they're not starting from scratch in the U.S. because of the acquisition of Vizio. So it's not that, you know, in terms of supply chain and, and, and retail relationships and stuff like that, they're starting from scratch. But they are when it comes to their brand. And this is going to be really fascinating to watch if, you know, essentially a really big Chinese company can come into the U.S. and make a huge brand push on a whole bunch of different product fronts. Um, in fact, I can't think of the last time something like this has happened. Um, I, I think it's going to work. Um, I think that they are positioning some, themselves with products that are unique enough and uh, and have a decent value proposition 
that there are going to be a lot of people willing to take the plunge on a new brand like this. Um, I, I guarantee it's going to be an expensive marketing effort to build their brand here, but um, I won't be surprised at all if they get a pretty good foothold. That's interesting. I, I guess I see this differently. I, I'm more skeptical of their ability to succeed. I think particularly because it's not clear that they are willing to spend money on marketing. One of the big things that they talked about in their sort of launch event was that they're much leaner than other companies because they sell direct through their website. They're not going to do third-party channels. They don't do lots of marketing. And yet the problem is they're unknown here and they're entering very kind of competitive markets. And so unless they do spend literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars on marketing here in the U.S., none of the other stuff they do will do them any good because nobody will even be aware of it. And that's the challenge here, I think, is that uh, for all the stuff they claim that's interesting, the, the ecosystem's pretty loose, frankly. Uh, they're majoring on content, which is kind of a new thing for a Chinese company to try to do in the U.S., but the content offerings are really not clear yet. They talked about something called the Eco Pass today, but there's no pricing for that. And other than a relationship with, I think, a movie streaming site called Fandor, it's not clear what else is supposed to be part of that. There have been some reports they might be working with Netflix in some way, but Netflix has kind of denied that. So they have some additional announcement to make in a couple of weeks' time on November 2nd. Uh, but it's not clear what that will be or how much value that will add to whatever they're trying to sell here. So to my mind, at least, it's it's there was a ton of buzzwords in the launch event. There was a lot of grandiose talk. And then what they're actually delivering today seems to be sort of a pale imitation of that from an ecosystem perspective. And so... I'm, I'm certainly skeptical that they're actually going to be able to pull this off, especially since the content hook is still really unclear in terms of what the value proposition actually is there. So I'll probably write some of this up for, for a tech opinions for tomorrow. So if you're interested in reading more about it, that'll be published on Thursday. Any last thoughts on that before we move on? I, I think where they have an entry point here is that they're entering on the lower end. Um, there are a lot of value purchasers out there. I agree that not having, I agree that going with an online play is a limiting factor, but we're also living in an age when, you know, people are buying a lot of stuff online anyway. And, I, you know, I think network effects are going to help them. If it's cheap, it's going to make a big difference. And that seems to be the approach they're taking so far, with the exception of that gigantic 85 inch. 4K television that's like $5,000 or something like that. The, the rest of it seems like they're trying to position it at the lower end price-wise, and I think that is actually going to help them convince buyers to try it out. And, and that's going to be the way, the way they enter. But, you know, we've seen this happen with car manufacturers in the U.S. Um, Hyundai is a good example of that. I mean, they came at, at the U.S. market, again, brand-wise from scratch, but... Uh, um, but, you know, they, they made a place for themselves. And I think there's room for a similar play like that in consumer electronics. Yeah, it'll be certainly interesting to watch how this plays out. Um, as it seems, this is one of those rare occasions where I think we have a pretty different perspective on something like this. So it'll be interesting to see which if one of us ends yeah. up being right here. I know, we got to figure out a way to, like, put money on this or create yeah, some sort of accountability. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, the second news roundup topic that we talked about doing was the Apple car reports. And I think it was the it was, was it Bloomberg, I think, that reported on a sort of scaling back of what's been called Project Titan. Um, ostensibly, the original ambition was to actually build a car. And now uh, the ambitions are being scaled back to building something less than that, something like a platform, essentially, for cars. Um, and the big question in my mind is just what version of that makes sense both for Apple and for manufacturers? Uh, and what I mean by that is if it's just a behind-the-scenes kind of platform, that's very un-Apple. Um, you know, if there's no user interface, if it's not tightly integrated into hardware and software and all the rest of it, 
um, then how does that fit with the rest of what Apple does? So strategically from an Apple perspective, how does that make sense? And if it is the kind of thing that has a clear user interface and all the stuff that actually faces the user is very kind of Apple-y and Apple-branded and so on, that's something that the car manufacturers are very unlikely to want to adopt. I mean, they're fine with having CarPlay as an option in the car, but it's usually secondary to their own branding, their own services and everything else. Uh, most, if not all, car manufacturers would be very reluctant to have Apple just take over all of that stuff. Um, and, you know, when it comes to the platform in the car, not only is it going to have to do the infotainment stuff it's done in the past, but increasingly this is going to be driving things like the actual car itself and autonomous driving and all that stuff, where it's, it's not at all clear that Apple has the skill set to drive that for a third party uh, or itself at this point, um, you know, compared to the mapping capabilities of, say, Google or an Uber that have much more data on this stuff already. Uh, so just very hard for me to see how that platform approach ends up making sense either for Apple or for car manufacturers, at least not at the same time. There's a version that kind of makes sense strategically for Apple, but probably doesn't make sense for the manufacturers and vice versa. But um, hard to see how it would actually play out. And so I, I wonder if this is more just kind of uh, taking a step back and scaling back the ambitions for now, seeing if certain things can be done. And then perhaps in future, going back to a larger scale approach that involves either making cars or partnering closely with an individual car manufacturer to build something that's sort of tightly integrated. The other interesting part of this story all along has been uh, some kind of transportation service. And obviously with Uber and others out there already focusing on that, you know, Apple's investment in Didi in China, you know, there is, an ob there is a, a clear sort of path that they could take that way as well. But again, unless you own the cars, uh, why invest in all this in-car technology? Uh, you know, if it's just about mapping and autonomous driving, that's a very different focus, and that doesn't seem to be what this is about. So the whole thing's kind of baffling to me at this point. It'll be very interesting to see where that goes, although we're not likely to actually know for a couple of years at least. And I think that's why it's baffling, is because there's so much we don't know. It's it's way, way too early to make any sort of permanent, any any reliable predictions on where Apple's headed with this. It's important to remember that all the knowledge that they've gained up to this point isn't lost just because they're scaling back. And they ramped this project up pretty quickly, and I think there's every reason to think they could do it again if they decided to ramp up. I completely agree with you that the, that the idea of just baking a service into what a bunch of other car manufacturers produce feels weird. It doesn't feel like Apple's approach to things. Um, I think the much more likely approach if Apple doesn't do this entirely on their own is that they'll partner with another auto manufacturer. I could picture them doing it with a relatively high-end brand, but one that produces a lot of cars, somebody like BMW. And there were talks, there were rumors of talks between Apple and BMW in the past already. Mm -hmm. If they did that, it wouldn't surprise me if they did it as a through a subsidiary where it was a totally separate company part-owned by the partners involved. Um, to 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 get this off and going, but it does it it just feels like Apple's DNA doesn't allow them to to do part of anything, right? Right. That they want to own it top to bottom, and and I still think there's every reason for us to uh, trust that that could still happen. And the reality is, they could just bail on it altogether and just leave it up to other um, to to others to tackle the car market. Um, if they do that, though, it's because they've decided that other priorities are worth their attention and time, and I don't know what those would be right now. Right. Okay, well, let's move on to our third news roundup topic, which is the story about Google doing a deal with CBS for their over-the-top service. Uh, this is presumed to be something that would be part of YouTube. It's been um, at least preliminarily called uh, Unplugged, I believe. 
but this is one of a whole raft of these over-the-top video services that we're going to see. We've obviously got Sling in the market already. You've got Sony with View in the market already. Uh, we've got um, some skinny bundles coming from the traditional pay TV providers like Verizon. Uh, so just kind of scaled down versions still delivered in the traditional way. And then you've got Hulu, Google, um, you've got AT&T coming out with something called DirecTV now between the end of now and the end of the year. Um, you've got obviously the Google stuff that we're talking about here, a whole range of these. Uh, Amazon is another one. Uh, a whole bunch of these coming out in the next few months. And so uh, really, obviously, the major obstacle to doing this stuff is to signing the deals uh, with the broadcasters. And, and apparently Google's signed one now with CBS and is working with uh, the other big uh, broadcasters here in the U.S. The broadcasting part of this is always the toughest because uh, the cable networks are one thing. They, they broadcast nationally basically the same content. The broadcasters are tough because there's a lot of local content that goes into this that's very different market by market throughout the U.S. And so if you want to offer a national service, you have to either do deals with all the local affiliates of these companies or a CBS or somebody like that has to do the deals on your behalf and kind of roll up all the affiliates into a national service. Uh, and that's been one of the big challenges from the beginning with these services. And it's why things like Sling have traditionally not offered broadcast nationally or at all. Uh, Sling now has ABC and a handful of markets around the country, but a lot of these services don't do that. Uh, and so that's one of the big challenges. So it'll be interesting to see how this pans out. But what were your thoughts about this? Uh, it feels like another tiny crack in the dam, right, of, of over the top finally being the way that most people are watching television. Um, do I think that, that Google's over-the-top service is going to be the one that most people are watching? No. But that's just because I, I, I don't know. I think Google's history in trying to get into the TV market um, has never shown that they're, you know, good at it in the in a way that would give them a lead in the market. But, you know, the, it's going to take a bunch of little cracks in the dam like this. It's going to take a bunch of little deals like this to soften up the the, 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 the opportunity for television to finally be over the top via the Internet. So that's kind of how I see it. I mean, I don't think we're going to talk about this deal again, you know, as being a really important, in, 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 like a watershed moment in the, uh, in this process by any means, but we need lots and lots of these little deals being right. done so that uh, so that an over-the-top service can finally be available to, to everybody and that they'll get what they want out of that service. Yeah, and I think what becomes really interesting here is everybody's got basically the same economics. So they're all buying the same content right. from the same providers who are not really going to bend on price to any particular player. So it's really about whether you're willing to pay the piper, as it were, uh, and at which point they all end up with basically the same offering as well, which is kind of a slimmed down, uh, digital first, mobile first to some extent version of what we've all traditionally had. So fewer channels uh, designed with you know modern devices in mind, so you, you don't have to deal with a set-top box anymore and it works on your iPad or your Samsung Galaxy S phone or whatever. Um, the question then becomes, who wins in that scenario? If they all have the same economics, does the person who's willing to take the thinnest margins win? Does the person who builds the best user interface win? Does the person who has the broadest set of devices on which their service runs win? Is it the one with the most reliable delivery and the least buffering, um, you know, so the best content delivery uh, relationships or, or whatever else? Um, you know, those things become very important at that point. I, I tend to think that at least for some subset of customers, the user interface is going to be really critical. And if you've ever used Sling, 
that's one of the ways they fall short, in my opinion. I think they've done well because they're one of the few offerings out there that does this at all right now. But the user interface is horrible, in my opinion. Um, and I'm a subscriber, but I, I really don't like the user interface. I, I subscribe despite the user interface, not because of it. And so I think there's an opportunity for somebody to innovate around that. And I think there's an opportunity for somebody to innovate around things like recommendations and things like that so that you can find quickly what you might be interested in watching right now rather than having to scroll endlessly through some kind of programming guide. So that I think it'll be very interesting to see how the competition shifts to these sort of what have been historically sort of peripheral things around uh, pay TV, but will now become very important as sort of differentiators. I think another thing that's going to make a difference is how these different providers manage advertising. Because mm. um, the thing about doing over the top is you can remove the ability uh, for people to fast forward. And so you can lock them back into advertising, which was the case until time shifting became a thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, first with VCRs and then with TiVos and DVRs and everything else. I think time shifting is also going to be a really big deal. That's one of the things that's kept me away from Sling and other, you know, over-the-top services mm -hmm. without being able to, you know, record shows and sort of store up a library. And it obviously wouldn't be actually recording, but it'd be right. essentially slotting them away into a playlist mm -hmm. that I can watch later. Yeah. You know, without without more time shifting opportunities over the top, I think is going to fall short for a lot of people. Because right now with Dish or or Comcast or whatever they have, time shifting is is assumed, right? It's what people take for granted now. Yeah. So I think time shifting and advertising are going to be ways too where the economics will be really interesting and important, and those need to be worked out before you can have a, an over the top service that people are going to you know, sign up for in any substantial numbers. Yeah, and I think they're going to largely resolve those issues by uh, providing video on demand. And then it goes back to the question that you're talking about, about advertising. So what's the role of advertising within that? You know, today you can subscribe to Hulu in an ad-free way where you see basically no ads anymore. Uh, CBS All Access has an ad-free option, although there's still the odd ad here and there with that one. Uh, but a lot of other VOD services do show you some ads during the course of it. And, uh, and the quality of those ads has typically been terrible. For all the talk about targeting, you often see the same ads over and over and over again, oh, yeah. um, which is the same, frankly, if you watch you know, ESPN over the top or, or anything else like that. You see the same ad right. over and over again. Um, but, yeah, that's going to be a, another interesting competitive angle. I suspect this is something we could talk about quite a bit more. But let's move on uh, from, from, I think, what's been our longest news roundup for a while to... Uh, our question of the week segment in which we'll talk about and our earnings preview for Q3. Uh, as I mentioned, all the big companies will be reporting over the next several weeks. Uh, we have quite a few reporting next week in particular. And so we just want to do an earnings preview. Uh, I wrote a piece about this for TechPinions Insiders earlier this week, but we'll kind of expand a little bit on that. But we're going to go through this in order of, of the companies, in alphabetical order for the sort of big six or seven companies in the space. So. Uh, Aaron's going to be asking the questions, and I'll be answering them, but we'll have a bit more back and forth than we usually do as well. So because we're taking this in alphabetical order, we should start with alphabet. That's right. And, uh, and so why don't, why, don't you give us, why don't you start off with them and give us a sense of what you expect next week? Yeah, I, I think one of the most interesting things about alphabet ever since they became alphabet and started breaking out their results in this new and different way is uh, just... The, the sort of target that's been put on the back of what's known as the other bets uh, by this new segment approach. Uh, because now the other bets are very clearly sort of separated and you can see just how unprofitable they are. And we kind of talked about this specifically in an earlier episode, but 
you know, there have been quite a few stories since that change of belt tightening among these groups. There's some of these uh, individual sort of subsidiaries under other bets that Google's trying to divest, others that it's trying to refocus in different ways, and yet others where uh, they're being told to kind of uh, approach things differently so that they can produce better financial results. And so, um, you know, I'll be looking for more sort of evidence of that in the finances that are reported, either evidence of uh, improving financial performance in the other bets or evidence of, um, you know, descriptions of how things are changing. Um, things like CapEx and, and other things have kind of come down a little bit at Alphabet as a whole over the last year or so since Ruth Parat took over as CFO. So I'll be looking for evidence of that sort of ongoing belt tightening. Um, the other thing that's interesting is Google's been making another big push around its enterprise applications and that kind of thing recently. So they renamed Google Apps as G Suite. Uh, they've talked up how, how they feel that enterprise apps can become as big a business as their core business over time. Uh, cloud's obviously a big part of that, and Microsoft and Amazon are big competitors there. But Google's really the only company among the three that doesn't provide any kind of disclosure around the size of its enterprise business or its cloud business. It's within this very broad other category that has everything from hardware sales to the Google Play Store and everything else in it right now. So. Uh, be great to get some more transparency. I imagine they're going to get more and more calls from analysts to provide that transparency. Um, and then, of course, uh, it'll be interesting to see what they have to say about pre-sales for the Pixel and Home, which, of course, were announced and went on pre-sale after the end of the quarter, but um, which you know, I'm sure they're going to get questions about. They'll probably want to talk about how great the demand has been. I doubt very much that we'll hear any kind of specific numbers, but it'll be very interesting to hear financially how they talk about the role of those uh, products and, and how they're going to contribute to uh, to their overall financial performance in time, especially as regards kind of future guidance and that kind of thing. So that would be a really interesting thing to watch out for there as well. Uh, we're kind of we're going to kind of get to this when we talk about pixel reviews at the end of the episode today. But I wonder, uh, do you think that there's going to be concern? With those watching Alphabet about Apple, or sorry, about Google moving more into producing its own hardware, um, there certainly could be concern. I mean, the fact they're using contract manufacturing through HTC right now means a lot of the risk potentially sticks with HTC rather than with Google itself, and so I think that will help things. But you know, certainly this could be a distraction from the rest of the business. This could be something that ultimately causes Google to make different strategic decisions from what it might have done in the past. And the Google Assistant's a good example of that. You know, historically, Google's tried to get the broadest distribution for its services. This time around, they're using a service as a sort of exclusive to drive hardware purchases. So to what extent does this pursuit of hardware, which is going to be tiny for them for the time being, uh, hamper their ability to get broad distribution for AI and other stuff uh, that historically would have been their main focus? And so they might well get questions about that and to what extent uh, this pursuit of hardware and, and trying to get differentiation around their hardware is going to hamper the rest of the business. I think that those would be fair questions to ask at this point. Well, let's use that as a segue to go to the next company, which is Amazon, because they also sometimes get distracted by hardware. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and so why don't, you, why don't you give us a, a, a sense of what you expect with Amazon? Yeah, Amazon's been fascinating to watch over the last couple of years because, you know, they've had this reputation for never generating profits and, and they've been rather neglecting that reputation for the last little while because they have been generating profits. 
certainly not on the scale of Apple, Microsoft, Google, or, or Facebook. Um, you know, they're still sort of single-digit operating margins that we're talking about, but it's, it's been non-zero and going up fairly consistently as well. And there have really been two main drivers behind that. So Amazon Web Services gets a lot of the attention. You know, this is a, a highly profitable business for Amazon. It's growing very fast as well. It'll probably hit 10% of revenue this quarter for the first time, which is really significant uh, for a business that's relatively new and is effectively a side business. Um, and so that's, that's significant in its own right. But um, the reality is that the uh, e-commerce sales are also uh, doing really well recently. You know, they, they'd slowed down for a bit. And over the last year and a half, Amazon's been able to accelerate that again. And it's interesting, too, to think about the fact that, you know, Amazon sells stuff itself through its own channels, and then it does uh, third-party sales through its platform, too. And this quarter, uh, they report a number, which is the percentage of their unit sales, which are third-party seller units. And basically every quarter for quite some time now, it's gone up by one percentage point. And this past quarter, it was 49%. So basically half their sales this quarter are very likely to be these seller units. And so that's sort of symbolically an important transition point for Amazon, where half of what they sell would be Amazon stuff, half of it would be third-party sellers selling through their channels and to some extent making use of their fulfillment and so on as well. Um, and that's important because those third-party seller sales are actually much higher gross margin for Amazon because it doesn't have to carry inventory or anything else. It basically just reports its cut of those sales as revenue, which is mostly profit as well. So that's actually been one of the other drivers of their improving margins over recent years as well has been this, this increasing contribution from third-party sellers. Um, its international business has been becoming more profitable too, so it'll be interesting to see if it can hit a fourth straight quarter of profitability there, because uh, that's historically not done so well and seems to have been turning a bit of a corner recently. Um, they've really reduced their capital expenditures recently. That's been another driver of these expanding margins is uh, the depreciation and amortization that's associated with those capital expenditures over the long term has been falling off. And so that, in turn, has been allowing their margins to increase. So uh, there's a question there. You know, Do they no longer feel the need to invest as they used to? Are they deliberately ramping that down in order to start generating profits? Is that a long-term thing? Is that a short-term thing? You know, How does that play out over the long run? So there's lots of interesting questions around all of that which um, you know, I'll be looking for answers in the actual financials, but also in the discussion on the earnings call too. So related to the reductions in CapEx, I wonder, the, so the Echo, right, and mm. the, the Alexa platform seems to be begging for more hardware products, right, to deepen the, to, 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 to deepen the impact on a person's life, right? I mean, Alexa is only useful as long as you've got an Echo device nearby. Um, I mean, should we? Are we? Is it is it premature to read the tea leaves when it comes to capex to think that Amazon isn't really thinking about much of a bigger push when it comes to Alexa and where they want it to go? Yeah, there certainly doesn't seem to be any evidence of uh, that they are right now. I mean, obviously Alexa's making its way into the Fire TV devices, and, and they've been talking about it making its way into more of the tablet line as well. So they have the existing devices that it can show up in, and that obviously wouldn't, you know make a big dent in CapEx. If there was some big new hardware category, that might start to show up there. But the reality is the CapEx at Amazon is dominated by building fulfillment centers and that kind of thing. So you know, even if they were to make a more significant investment in hardware, I suspect it would just be noise in the overall picture as far as capital expenditures are concerned. 
Um, the other big area of spending for them is headcount. And so they always ramp up headcount very significantly towards the end of the year. And their headcount in general has been going up by enormous percentages uh, every year. But uh, in Q3 in particular, it tends to go up a lot. So it'll be interesting to see what the number is this year. But, um, you know, they add basically a Facebook's worth of new employees every year. Um, it's absolutely enormous. And, uh, and, and there's no sign of that stopping anytime soon either. Great. Okay, let's move on to Apple, and that will round us out with the company starting with the letter A. Yes. <laughs> so things go faster so, once you get past A. It turns out. Right. Let's talk about Apple next. Yeah. So um, we talked about the Project Titan stuff. I would guess that would come up on the earnings call as usual. Apple will probably uh, decline to discuss it specifically. I think there might be some general remarks about you know we make investments in all kinds of things which. Uh, don't make their way into products and or aren't ready to make their way into products yet and occasionally we refocus those activities maybe there might be some general marks along those lines from Tim Cook but I would guess they'd largely decline to discuss what they might be doing in cars uh, but I, I would think the main focus will just be on uh, any indications of iPhone sales Apple watch sales off the new devices that were announced in, uh, in September um, you know there's a lot of evidence that this upgrade cycle could well be bigger for the iPhone uh, than last year, probably not as big as two years ago, but somewhere in between those two. Um, and that, that in turn should lead back to growth in the iPhone line, potentially for Apple as a company in the last quarter of the year especially. Uh, and so I'd expect a lot of questions about that. Obviously, they'll provide guidance for the next quarter, which will tell us whether they believe that revenues will grow year on year. Uh, iPad got back to revenue growth last quarter. Uh, not shipment growth, but higher ASPs drove revenue growth. So it'll be interesting to see if that continues. Uh, certainly, Mac sales should still have been declining in Q3, as they have been for some time now. Uh, we mentioned that there's going to be a Mac event next week, so guidance should uh, get at some uh, estimate of, of how many Macs are going to sell. They don't provide guidance on a product basis, but I would guess they'll get some questions about that, and uh, they, they probably refuse to answer those, given that the earnings call will be two days before the Mac event. Uh, and yet, you know, that's bound to be something on people's mind as well, and so it'd be good to look for kind of clues that... Um, they're expecting growth there. Um, but obviously, the watch, you know, Series 2, um, there'll be questions about how that's selling and, and how Apple expects it to sell going forward and whether that product line is going to get back to growth again. Um, they'll probably continue to talk up services. You know, it's been a big theme for them for several quarters now. It'll be less important, frankly, if hardware revenues are growing again in the next quarter or two. Uh, but I think that's a theme that they're not, they're not going to abandon just because hardware sales are growing again. It's something that I think they want to continue to hammer away at as well. So lots of interesting stuff to watch for there, I think. This is going to be an interesting earnings call for Apple next week because they are announcing earnings just two days before mm. they're hosting their event. Um, do, you, do you expect any clues? I mean, I know Apple is really quiet about stuff like this, um, but what do you think in terms of how, how the two are going to relate to each other? Yeah, it's funny because the earnings call was originally scheduled for the 27th, which is the date that the event is going to happen on, and was moved up two days to the 25th. They could obviously have done it the other way around, and then that would have given them considerable freedom to talk about uh, the new Macs on the earnings call, and instead we're going to have uh, earnings call first. And so obviously there won't be anything in any kind of detail, but I would guess that they'll say, we have some great products that we're excited to show you. Um, you know. Yes, they'll have some impact this year, but we think they're going to really set us up well for next year as well, and blah, 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 blah. You know, that's the kind of right. level of detail I would expect to get. There may be a hint or two here and there, but obviously Apple doesn't want to blow its own secrets two days before, so it's going to be very general if there's any kind of discussion of it at all. Right. Sometimes during earnings calls, they, they there are a lot of products and categories where they don't announce details, right, like Apple Watch sales, for right. example. 
But it seems like every earnings call, they like to throw in a number here or there. So it might be Apple TV sales or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you if you could choose a surprise number, right, mm-hmm. where they actually give you a number on a on a product or service, what would you what would you choose that they shared? Apple Watch sales would be great. I really don't think it's going to happen, but um, you know we we've all had our estimates of those, but they're quite hard to back out because they're in this category with a bunch of other stuff that's also unpredictable over time. You know, things like the iPod that's declining, the Apple TV that's really hard to know how well that's selling. Um, so actually, getting some kind of real indication of Apple Watch sales would be great. There was a hint a while back uh, at the September event when Apple talked about how it became the second top selling uh, watch manufacturer uh, in 2015. Uh, when the Apple Watch was on sale for nine months, and you can kind of back out of that a rough revenue estimate, which is helpful. Uh, but knowing unit sales would be helpful because then you'd be able to back out the ASPs and things like that as well. So that's what I'd love to see, but I'm not holding my breath. Right. Okay, let's move on to Facebook. Um, Facebook has been growing like crazy. Yeah. And so talk through what you think is going to happen with their earnings announcements. Yeah, I, they, they have one of those few companies that really does just hit the ball out of the park every time, it seems like, as far as earnings. Um, there's been very little kind of uh, exception to that over the last few years, ever since it went public. And there were all these worries about whether they would be successful in mobile. You know, they've really kind of proved that, yes, they are going to be extremely successful in mobile. Um, you know, I think the most interesting thing about Facebook is it's made a bunch of acquisitions, and yet the vast majority, like 95 or 97% of its revenue, still comes from traditional ads. Uh, yes, some of that includes Instagram, um, but you know WhatsApp doesn't make any impact yet. Oculus doesn't make any impact yet. You know a lot of the other newer initiatives that they have aren't really generating revenue yet, um, and so uh, there's very little evidence yet of those acquisitions paying off in terms of revenue terms. And so uh, the question is, you know, they announced uh, Workplace, which is a new uh, Facebook for work. Basically, they announced Marketplace, which is sort of secondhand. Uh, sales between Facebook users. Uh, just this week, they or today, in fact, they announced that they're going to start allowing any company to sell products through their pages. Um, so there's a whole range of stuff that is not ad-related necessarily that could generate some revenue for them going forward. And so none of that's generating revenue yet for them. But again, on a guidance and sort of forward-looking perspective, I would expect them to be asked about that. It'll be very interesting to see how they frame that, how Mark Zuckerberg or Charles Sandberg talk about uh, the contribution that some of these new things are going to make to Facebook's revenues going forward and, and a diversification away from ads. Because that's the other thing, is at some point Facebook's going to hit a max ad load, uh, especially in mature markets like the US and Canada, and then it's going to be very hard to grow that ad revenue any further. And so they need alternative revenue streams, and I think they're very aware of that, and that's why they've made these acquisitions. But how quickly is that going to start to flow? You know, How quickly are going to we see something else other than ads start to contribute meaningfully to revenues? Um, the other thing that's interesting is that they report these ARPU numbers that have been skyrocketing. I mean, it's almost it's about $50 annually per user in the U.S. and Canada. It's a lot less elsewhere in the world, but they're all rising. Um, but Instagram's been an increasingly important contributor to that, and yet it doesn't break out Instagram users uh, separately in terms of ARPU. And, and it's a bit misleading because the revenue from Instagram is included in those ARPU calculations, but the user numbers aren't. And so I'd expect to see increasing calls for them to kind of separate that out, at least be a bit more transparent about what proportion of revenue is coming from Instagram. Again, I suspect they're going to uh, resist that that uh, that call for increased transparency there. But uh, you know, lots of interesting stuff to look for there. But I would expect them to report some really solid results again overall. 
So with Facebook, I'm, I'm curious what you think of their new workplace initiative, the idea of mm. just having Facebook but in the workplace. I mean, they're going after Microsoft, which is a big deal here. They're going after Slack, which has been growing like crazy. Um, you know, what do you, what do you see as a, as a future for this work product that they've rolled out? Yeah, I see it partly defensive and partly offensive or, or an attacking sort of strategy. Um, on the defensive side, um, you know, Slack is exclusively an enterprise product, at least as it's defined. But what tends to happen is people use Slack at work and then they say, this is really handy. I'm going to use it for my soccer team. I'm going to use it for my family to plan our reunion. I'm going to use it for my book group or whatever. And suddenly you see it being used in people's personal lives, even though there's no sort of attempt to do that. And so... Uh, you know, I think there's a threat there to Facebook that they have to respond to. But I think, um, you know, it's a logical extension. Lots of people already use things like groups and so on within Facebook to manage work-related stuff. But it's you're using your personal account with all your personal pictures to interact in that work environment, which doesn't always feel appropriate, can be a bit awkward, and either you're sharing inappropriate things into the work environment or you're deliberately holding things back on the personal side because you know they'll be shared into the work scenario. And so having the same familiar interface and everything else but a different look and feel and a separate profile, I think, is, is a great combination. It could do really well. The pricing seems fairly aggressive. Um, it's not as aggressive as some of the other services out there, but it's it's not super expensive either. And so could well be successful. It's, it's a way for Facebook to extend into the part of your life that it can't really address today. Uh, because you know it's not appropriate for you to be doing personal stuff there. They can start to monetize the time that you spend at work as well in this way. And, and, and again, it's a diversifying revenue stream as well. So away from ads towards a subscription business, which is predictable and doesn't have the same sort of ultimate ceiling on it that ads do. So I think it's interesting for all those reasons. Yeah. Well, well let's talk about Microsoft next then. Um, uh, Microsoft has both earnings and a product announcement coming up. So they're kind of in the same boat as Apple. They're going to be really busy for the next little while. Um, what are you seeing in the future for Microsoft? Yeah, Microsoft's uh, interesting. They, they actually pre-announced um, that they will be um, sharing some new metrics this quarter. Uh, and actually their earnings call is, is tomorrow, Thursday. Um, and so the, their results will be out sooner than... Um, uh, sooner than Apple's and before their event as well. So they'll be in the same boat in that sense as, as Apple and that they'll be asked to talk about some things that haven't been announced yet. Uh, but, you know, one of the most interesting things and one of the new metrics they're going to be providing is around cloud. So they've talked about cloud revenue run rates and things like that. They've, I think at one point in time they gave something of a margin number for their cloud business. But unlike Amazon, where AWS is this kind of completely separate part of their business that's very easy to segment off and report separately, the cloud business at Microsoft is really lots of different things. So there's some office stuff in there, there's dynamics in there, there's a lot of other pieces uh, that sit in different reporting segments in Microsoft. And so when they pull a cloud number out, it's really uh, pulling a lot of bits and pieces from other parts of the business together. Uh, but they're gonna start providing a margin for that, um, which you know won't quite be the same thing that Amazon does with AWS, but it'll be a lot closer and it'll be a great step in the right direction in terms of transparency. But one of the other things they're gonna be doing is reporting on gaming revenue so xbox hardware xbox xbox live services xbox games and and minecraft is obviously part of that now too since they acquired the company that makes minecraft a while back um so that'll be interesting to see kind of how big is that it's it's uh, i think it was a nine point something billion dollar business uh, last fiscal year for them overall um so it's a significant contributor to their overall revenue 
Um, but more importantly, in some ways, it's one of the few places in the consumer business where Microsoft makes any money at all because with Windows being a free upgrade for the last cycle, um, with uh, you know phones largely going by the wayside with a lot of their other initiatives largely aimed at the business market, gaming is one of the few ways that they can actually make money from consumers, especially post a Windows device or Windows uh, operating system purchase. Um, they really don't have a lot of other services. They don't really have a music service, they don't really have a TV service that's big. Um, they don't have a lot of the other content stuff that uh, a lot of their ecosystem competitors do. And so gaming is one of the few areas that they can really monetize in a sort of post-purchase uh, scenario. So it'll be very interesting to see, A, what that number is, but how it grows over time uh, and to see them break that out a bit more. So that's all interesting to look for. And then overall revenue growth, which has been challenging for them, partly because they've got a lot of declining businesses, partly because there's some funny accounting stuff around deferral of Windows 10 revenue. It'll be interesting to see what that revenue growth trend looks like this quarter and if there's any sign of that turning around. When it comes to the cloud numbers that they're going to be announcing, are these going to be broken into smaller categories? Because like you say, cloud means so many things. Are we just going to get a big overall picture of what cloud revenue is coming in? Yeah, no, it's tricky. They, they have one business segment that's, I think it's intelligent cloud or something like that. Um, but that's not the same thing as what they call their commercial cloud revenue. And so we're just going to get that very high level disclosure for this sort of uh, catch all bucket of commercial cloud revenue and the margin number. Uh, and that's going to be it. So there won't be the breakdown. Uh, I do a lot of sort of diving into the financials and in the SEC filings in particular, there are some numbers that you can use to sort of back out some of the individual pieces, at least from a revenue perspective, but it's very much harder to back out the, the margin numbers from that stuff. So it's, as I say, it's going to be a bit more disclosure than we've had, which is always a good thing, but uh, it's still going to be pretty opaque. Great. Okay, so now let's talk about Samsung. They uh, yeah. Everybody's obviously expecting a huge hit on mm -hmm. Samsung's uh, announcements because of uh, the Note 7 uh, impact, but talk us through what, what we should be looking at with Samsung's uh, quarterly announcement. Yeah, no, it's interesting because they, they provided preliminary numbers and then they had to revise those preliminary numbers once they decided to kill off the Note 7. Um, and so we've had some indication already of A, what the numbers will be, and B, what the impact of the Note 7 is. And it's going to be a big drop in revenue, actually a bigger drop on profits, because not only do you have the foregone revenue, um, but you also have all the costs of the recall, the fact that the devices were manufactured and now no longer have any revenue associated with them. Um, so they're going to take a big hit on both revenue and profits, and then obviously in shipments too. And so it's quite possible that uh, Apple will ship more uh, phones in Q3 than Samsung, which hasn't happened uh, except for two years ago ever. Um, and so that'll be an interesting thing to look at. Um, it'll be also interesting to hear how they talk about the impact on next quarter and beyond. You know, what's the guidance? What's the commentary about, you know, what the Note 7 being missing from the lineup is going to mean for sales and, uh, and uh, you know, whether people are likely to buy other Samsungs, whether they're going to delay purchases. Um, you know, what's going to happen to the Note line? Is it going to be killed off entirely or is it going to return next year sometime? Um, so lots of interesting questions around that. But of course, there's a lot of the rest of the business. There's the Galaxy S phones, there's semiconductors, there's TVs and so on that are all part of the Samsung business as well, even just within Samsung Electronics. Um, and, you know, in the smartphone business as a whole, they'd actually been doing better. It was more profitable. It was growing again. This is obviously going to put a dent in that, but uh, they should should get back to growth. But semiconductors has been unusually unpredictable over the last few quarters, so it'll be interesting to see how that performs, whether that bounces back again this quarter. It looks like it might do. Um, and then there's the rest of the business too, and I don't follow that as closely, but 
um, you know, it's 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 other than Apple, it's the only other uh, consumer electronics business out there of any size that generates really meaningful margins. And you know, other than the hit, the one-off hit this time around, that should continue to be the case. Well, it's an interesting question how long this is, how long the 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 hangover effect is going to last. Right. I mean, because there's obviously a lot of turmoil internally as a result of this. It's going to go all the way up to the very top executive management. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, how long do you think we'll see evidence of the Note 7? Because it's also going to impact holiday sales, right? Because they're going to have a flagship product gap there, right, where they would have had a product for holiday sales lined up and now it's missing. I mean, how long do you think the the hangover is going to last on on the Note Seven problem? Yeah, I mean, there's the the immediate financial impact. There's going to be missing revenue in Q4. I think there's definitely going to be that there. I think beyond that, it starts to taper off a bit, especially once you get into spring next year when they have new Galaxy S eight or whatever that will be. Um, obviously, the Galaxy S seven still will sell through the holiday quarter as well. So it won't be like the, the revenue disappears entirely. A lot of it will just shift to other Samsung products. But there will be some lost sales there, either from people delaying purchases or switching to a competitor or whatever. I think beyond this year, I think that the, the impact is a lot less and certainly the margin impact will be a lot less because they'll take a lot of the, the cost and, and everything else in you know the Q3 and Q4 calendar year. Um, so there shouldn't be too much of a hangover there. It's just really the subtler sort of hangover from a branding and trust perspective going forward. And hopefully they can mitigate that. It looks like their brand hasn't taken too big a hit. It's obviously been in the news a lot, but I think they'll, they'll probably recover fairly well. Okay, great. Well, let's wrap this up with Twitter. Um, I'm, Twitter's interesting because there were all these acquisition rumors that were flying around, and right. it seems like pretty much every one of them has been squashed. And in fact, there's been a lot of speculation that the that the that the potential deals that were hanging out there, like with Disney or with Salesforce, were squashed because of the uh, or that these were killed off because of Twitter's trolling problem. Right. Um, talk to us about about Twitter and what we ought to be looking for next week. Yeah, and the challenge with Twitter is is it's always tempting to compare it to Facebook. And when you do that, it's a very unfavorable comparison. They're they're not profitable. They're not growing nearly as quickly. Their ARPUs are far lower. Their user growth is basically stagnated. You know, none of that's likely to change this quarter. Um, They they had this great strategy that Jack Dorsey outlined a year ago. They really haven't executed very well on that. And instead, they seem to have shifted all their focus to live video. And we've talked about some of this before. But with the acquisition prospects basically evaporating, they really do seem to be stuck on their own now. And so there's going to be a lot of questions about can you be a standalone business? You know, what are you going to do differently? How are you going to get user growth going again? How are you monetizing these live video efforts? There's more questions than answers, I think, right now. And so it's going to be interesting mostly to watch how Jack Dorsey and the rest of the management team address some of these big questions. Uh, they have a lot of stuff to work on. Um, and you know, even if there weren't the acquisition scenario and, and if those hadn't been scuppered by the, the harassment and the abuse, it continues to be a story. BuzzFeed's done some really good coverage about uh, abuse and harassment on Twitter and so on. Uh, it's something they really need to deal with. Um, and so I'd expect they'd be asked about that again uh, and also asked about you know how the product's going to evolve. They, they made some subtle changes to the 140-character limit recently but didn't do everything they said they were going to do. So is that still coming? Uh, so a lot of non-financial questions that obviously do have a financial impact down the line, but I think in some ways those are the most interesting questions that I would be asking if I were on the earnings call this time around. It definitely feels like they've got the ingredients getting mixed together for a shareholder revolt. And I wonder how that's going to play out because I think if they manage the report next week poorly, 
they might set themselves up for that exact problem. I, I think one of the interesting things that might be a bright spot next week, though, is is their video effort. And uh, why don't you talk? I mean, because they apparently did really well with the last presidential debate. The NFL games seem to be going well. It's better than most people expected. I mean, is is there really room to grow there for Twitter in the video space, do you think? Yeah, the big questions there are, A, who's watching this stuff? Is it people that are already on Twitter? In which case, it's not going to do anything for user growth. Uh, and secondly, uh, how do you monetize that? Because a lot of that is just uh, playing back video that's produced by others where others are selling the ads and everything else, where Twitter has very limited room to sell ads of its own. Um, and so, you know, is it actually going to monetize that? Or is it purely sort of a user attention grab? And, and if so, can it translate that into actual loyalty to user, uh, to the, the core Twitter product, and then in turn into money? So, you know, those are the big questions. You know, the live video numbers have been good in terms of viewership. It's not as clear that the revenue has been great from that. And it's also not clear that it's really doing anything unique that's Twitter-centric. Um, so it's unique in that it's easier to watch in some ways. There's none of the sort of sign-on stuff that you have to traditionally do with TV Everywhere offerings for watching football on the ESPN app or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, the Twitter feed that's been showing up next to it is really pretty generic and low value. Uh, and so there's not a lot they've been doing to really make that part of it value, the sort of interactive element, the sort of Twitter-specific element of it. And so that's something else they need to fix, I think, if they want to make this really differentiated, especially as we saw these new over-the-top services launching that we were talking about earlier. Uh, the fact that you're offering a live stream that's easy to watch is not going to be a big differentiator going forward. Well, that was a lot of ground we covered. Thank you. That was really fascinating. I think I feel much better informed for what to be paying attention to in the, in the week to come. All right. Well, the next couple of weeks, we'll know whether I was right about any of this stuff as well. So that'll be fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, let's move on to our third segment, which is just talking briefly about the, the reviews of the Google Pixel. We talked about the announcement uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, so we won't rehash all of that. But it was interesting to, to read the reviews that came out this week. Uh, my Pixel is shipping to me at the moment from Google. Uh, I ordered one on the day of the announcement just so I could have one to, to play around with and try out. So it should be here in the next few days. But um, until then, we're stuck with looking at what other people have said. What was your takeaway from all of that? Uh, I was Overall, I was impressed. I mean, it's, it seemed like the general consensus was that this is the best Android phone available now, um, yep. which in the end shouldn't be surprising to us because it's the maker of Android that's making this phone. Um, and I think it, it uh, adds a lot of credence to the whole widget concept that Apple has planted its flag into for all these years. Um, there have been a few things that have been uh, interesting to me. The camera seems to be living up to expectations. Mm -hmm. um, although I thought uh, Gruber pointed out an interesting problem, which is that it appears a lot of the a lot of the photography comparisons that are being made are using the cameras um, on tripods instead right. of handheld. That makes a big difference because the Google phones don't have optical image stabilization. They instead do electronic image stabilization. So they, right. they get at the image stabilization through software. And, and uh, if you, the problem is if you're, if you're using these phones on tripods, then there's no, there's no you don't need way the stabilization. to... That's yeah. right. You don't need the stabilization, so you don't know, what, what, you know how well that actually works. Right. Um, the, the other thing that I guess kind of bugged me a little bit was and, and the Verge really hammered this and the, and they did a great review. I thought I thought the Verge review was very thoughtful and thorough, but it it, it just kind of bugged me the way they said that this is a pretty good first effort by Google. And I just kind of <laughs> you know did a second take of that because it's like a first effort. They've been 
You know, they've been leading the design of their own phone that for years. Right. Granted, it's never obviously been the same effort here, and the level of design of design work that Google has put into it hasn't been to the same degree. But the idea that this is a first take by Google mm-hmm. in making a phone is is not at all accurate. And in fact, right. I think if anything, it's 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 proved the fact that the Pixel has come out so well is proof that Google has learned a lot over the years with the Nexus line. Mm. And it's all sort of coming to fruition now with the Pixel, which I think is great. And I think there are going to be a lot of people who are very happy with the device. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I I had a few thoughts about it myself. I mean, for one thing, it feels like this is a very close parallel to Microsoft's Surface in that, you know, OEMs have been making, uh, on the one hand, Windows devices, on the other hand, Android devices for a very long time. And yet the first time the company makes the OS steps in, it does much better on certain key aspects. Um, and it feels like, in some ways, an indictment of those OEMs whose business is to make these devices. You know, Microsoft and Google haven't made these devices. They now step in and do it. Uh, you can talk about the benefits of integration, but they're, they're, you know, unlike Apple that only makes its own stuff and so you have nothing to kind of compare it to, uh, you know, these companies are basically using the same version of, on the one hand, Windows, on the other hand, Android, to, to make these devices and yet doing a much better job. And there's really nothing... There was no special access to Android, no special features in Android or anything else that the other companies could not have done. They just simply haven't executed as well on this stuff. And so, uh, you know, kudos to Google for finally getting it right. But it's also an indictment of Samsung and the others that they haven't performed as well with basically the same access that Google's own internal teams had here. Um, and so that, that was one interesting thing that I noted. Um, another interesting thing that's kind of come out of these reviews in particular and that to some extent came out of earlier reviews of the iPhone is that at this point, the cameras in these very high-end phones are not necessarily better than each other, just making different choices. Um, and so, you know, some choose to default, by default, light a scene slightly lighter or darker, or to uh, pr- provide more vivid colors, but perhaps less natural colors, or to focus on uh, other aspects uh, and so on. And so really at this point, you're not choosing between a better camera and a worse camera. You're choosing between cameras on the basis of what they prioritize and what they choose to be good at among the many things they could be good at. Uh, and at that point, it actually becomes more important to be able to tweak those settings um, so that you can make your own choices about these things, which is where you know third-party camera applications or a built-in camera app that gives you more flexibility can be really helpful. Um, but you know the the Galaxy S7, the Note 7 before it um, obviously went up in flames, um, the Pixel, the iPhones, you know they all seem to have very comparable camera, cameras at this point in terms of performance, and it's really stylistic differences that, that are one of the big differences here. Um, sorry, did you want to say something about that? Well, I just think it's interesting because I think most consumers that are buying smartphones aren't sophisticated enough to appreciate those differences, or even if they do, they probably won't care. I mean, clearly the designers are making these decisions, right? The engineers are making these decisions, but... I don't. I don't think consumers are going to make these decisions, and and luckily they're all really great cameras in mm-hmm. these phones, and so it's not like people are getting hoodwinked. They're just right. they're 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 getting the choices that have been made for them without probably putting much thought into them. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Another thing that I thought was interesting, and I think it was again in the Verge review, uh, was the assistant, which is obviously one of the major selling points, as we were saying earlier. Um, that it has some big hang-ups. Um, you know, on the, on the whole, the review suggests that the assistant performs really well, that it's better than Siri, for example, on, on a lot of queries. It answers more queries, does it better, and so on. But there were a couple of hang-ups, one of which was 
um, that it's single account only. And so if you're like me or the Verge reviewer is in the same boat where you have a personal Gmail account and then you have a Google account for work as well, uh, you have to pick one that you want the assistant to work with. It can't see into both your calendars, for example, which, you know, my, those two calendars combined are my calendar. No, no one of those is my calendar. And so, uh, you know, I have my personal stuff in my personal calendar and work-related stuff in my work calendar. If an assistant can only see one of those at a time, that's really not helpful to me. Um, and similarly for emails, similarly for, for you know, travel plans and everything else, um, you know, I'm, I'm, the complete me is a combination of those things. And that's an interesting area where doing it at a device level rather than account level actually can be helpful. And, you know, Siri does that. It can see into all my calendars at once. Uh, and, and this Google Assistant can't, which feels like a strange backward step. And it's going to be even more noticeable in the context of the home where you not only have multiple accounts per person but multiple people. Um, and there was one other as well that I can't remember off the top of my head, but I remember The Verge highlighted another weird quirk with the assistant that just seemed odd and seemed like an odd handicap. Oh, I think it was just the, the fact that there's the assistant and then there's the assistant in Allo, which you can type to but can't talk to, and then there's Google Now and a variety of other things still on, on the phone. So whereas it seemed like the Google Assistant would become kind of the catch-all brand for all that stuff and it would all work well together, for now it's still very fragmented, which is also kind of frustrating. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's just proof of how hard this really is. I, mm. I think you know, Siri's been around long enough that we, I think we're at a point where we take for granted what this artificial intelligence and these assistants can do or should be able to do. And the fact that Google still has to figure out how to get the assistant to talk to multiple accounts, for example, I think is just evident. Like That seems like low-hanging fruit. It seems like it is the point. And the fact that they haven't done it, I think, is actually a clue as to how hard this stuff really is. And right. I, I think it's going to be, you know, I think there are exciting things ahead. There's definitely a lot more emphasis going on to these artificial intelligence driven assistants that will be, you know, getting deeper and deeper penetration into our lives. But, but I mean, in the end, it's going to be, it's going to be the result of incredibly smart people doing really hard work that I think most of us aren't going to be, or aren't really going to appreciate. So yeah, I, this stuff is, is just crazy hard. It has to yeah. be. Otherwise they would have solved these problems. Right. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. Well, let's leave that there and we'll wrap up with our weekly pick. Aaron, you have a recommendation for our listeners this time around. I do. It's a Twitter account. Um, and so, uh, uh, a, a friend and uh, um, that uh, on Twitter, a guy named Mark Miller, has a separate account he runs called Mark D Mill Deals. The Twitter handle is MDM. That's uh, Mark D Miller, but it's MDM Deals, and uh, he essentially curates all of the discounts that are happening on the iOS App Store on a regular basis. There are th probably thousands of discounts a week, right? That are brand new discounts and. And the and I've looked at websites before to figure out what deals are out there on apps, and it's like a fire hose because there are so many apps getting discounted at different times. And and Mark does a really good job of curating the deals that are actually useful, and he curates in two ways. One is by by you know choosing apps that are actually you know good apps because there's so much cruft on the app store. It's really nice because he picks apps that that uh, are well reviewed, well liked, used by a lot of people. But he also highlights deals that are especially compelling. And so I found myself, uh, he used to do this from his regular Twitter account. He's just recently spun it off into the separate MDM Deals Twitter account. Um, it's definitely worth a follow. He doesn't flood your Twitter stream by any means. Uh, he keeps it pretty lean. 
highlights only really the you know the apps that you ought to care about if there if there's a deal on them. I bought Minecraft Story Mode, for example, because it went from five dollars to free, and it's not something that would have hit my radar, but for following this Twitter account. So, that's my pick of the week is is the Twitter account at MDM Deals. Um, if you are an iOS user, this is a great way to get clued into some apps that you've maybe put off purchasing. You know, for whatever reason, we can be really stingy in funny ways when it comes to app purchases. But mm-hmm. this is a chance to 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 get some of those apps when they get. Uh, Nice discounts. All right, great. Thanks, Aaron. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll link to that along with a couple of other things that we talked about today uh, on the website at podcast.beyonddevices. Uh, we're coming up to the hour mark, so we'll wrap it up here. But thanks for being with us. Hopefully, you found this useful as always. We welcome your feedback and uh, welcome your ratings, reviews, recommendations, and so on as well. So uh, please take the time to do one of those things if you can. And we look forward to being with you again next week when, as I mentioned at the top, we'll probably be talking about Apple and Microsoft's events. Thanks.